This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I'm your host G Sampath. The Digital Personal Data Protection Bill 2023 has been passed in both houses of the parliament. The bill has gone through many versions and despite this the version that has been passed has left most independent data privacy experts disappointed it has come in for even more criticism from right to information activists who have charged that the bill amends the RTI act 2005 and weakens it so how well does the bill really fare on the core metric of protecting a user's personal data and where does it fall short and is it a complete disaster like many are saying or is that an overblown criticism we discuss this bill in detail in this episode of in focus and we have with us anjali bhardwaj who is with the national campaign for people's right to information and the satark nagrik sangathan and we are also joined by alok prasanna from the vidhi center for legal policy bangalore anjali alok thank you so much for taking time out for this discussion My pleasure, Sampath. Thank you, Sampath. Uh, Alok, let me start with you first. Uh, partly also because uh, we had done a podcast on this very bill, the fourth draft of this bill, in fact, about a year ago, and you had described that particular draft, quote unquote, as a huge step backwards from the earlier drafts. So I was just wondering, what are your preliminary thoughts on this version of the bill that has been passed? by the lok sabha and the rajya sabha is it better in any respect compared to the previous 2022 version that we had talked about or is it the same or is it worse so uh, sampath before looking at the specific terms of the bill um, let me just refresh the listeners as to why i think it's a huge step backward because the model of regulation that it follows is that it puts the burden of enforcement essentially on the individual right the individual data principle and it says the state will be around to try and you know help you enforce this but you will have to do most of the work and in that sense this uh, is a continues to be a huge step backward there's a little bit more clarity on some specific aspects uh, i suppose in the context of transfer of data in the context of uh, age of uh, of who who would count as a children and what a data protection board will actually look like but uh, i don't think the fundamental problem with this bill i won't even call it a defect because a defect is fixable this is not a fixable problem the philosophy underlying this bill is that you know companies which hover up all your data as the, uh, during the course of their business activities will pretty much continue to do so they just need to take basically uh, token consent from you and it's it's pretty much wild west out there as and they'll continue to do what they do Uh, except maybe appointing like a token data protection officer of some sort as required under the bill i don't see how this bill will fundamentally change anything that big tech does with our data and of course there are problems also with the way the government has been exempted in from a lot of provisions but we'll get to that uh, but primarily i i say that you know the improvement so to speak are marginal but this is a fundamentally problematic approach to data protection right uh, those are uh, weighty uh, criticisms indeed when you are saying basically the owners are enforcing whatever protections rights this bill gives the user or the data principle as they are called is with the user and there is no uh, no no clear regulatory body 
uh, with mandated powers and uh, obligations to do that enforcement. And secondly, you have said that uh, fundamentally, whatever big tech has been continuing to do with our data, it is going to go on as before. And there are, of course, the question of exemptions to the government, which we shall come and uh, look at in greater detail. Uh, Anjali, uh, one of the biggest uh, talking points about this bill so far is the way it handles the balance, uh, the ideal balance between right to information and right to privacy. And a lot of people are really up in arms over the fact that this bill weakens the right to information. And you have been uh, uh, working in this domain for a very long time. So I was just wondering, what are your preliminary thoughts about this bill uh, and the way it goes about uh, amending the Right to Information Act and its implications? Yes. So, Sampath, like you mentioned, uh, you know, we completely agree that both the right to information and the right to privacy are fundamental rights of the citizens of India, very necessary to lead a life of dignity. Uh, these Both these rights have been held to be uh, flowing from the Constitution by the Supreme Court of India. So the data protection bill uh, was expected to balance, to protect and harmonize these two rights. And uh, like uh, Alok said before me, it appears, and it's quite clear from the reading of this bill, that it does not protect the right to privacy. And on the other hand, it completely attacks the framework of the right to information. Now, the right to information law, which was passed in 2005, uh, empowers people to access information from the government, including personal information. And uh, there is a balancing of the right to information and the right to privacy very clearly in the RTI Act. So there is a list of exemptions in the RTI law, which list what is the kind of information that we as citizens cannot obtain uh, under the RTI law. And Section 81J clearly states that information that relates to personal information which has nothing to do with public activity or interest or that would cause unwarranted invasion of the privacy of an individual will not be provided to citizens under the RTI Act unless there is larger public interest. Now, it's a very nuanced, comprehensive provision that was put in when the law was being drafted in 2005. And even at that time, there were concerns of privacy that were raised by many groups. For example, groups working with HIV positive patients who felt that if there is a right to information law, there must be ways to protect people's personal information from disclosure unless uh, you see some of these uh, uh, public interest and other factors are uh, woven in and uh, if it causes unwarranted invasion of privacy. So this particular provision exists and it is used very widely to deny personal information to citizens under the RTI Act. What the Data Protection Bill has done is that it has amended Section 81J to expand its scope. And basically, it has removed all the nuances. It is. It goes on to say that all information that relates to personal information will be exempt from disclosure under the RTI law. That's what 81J now says. This is a very broad sweep and it basically takes out a lot of information 
from the ambit of the RTI law potentially that citizens earlier could get. Because like if we for example, Anjali, can the, you give an example of what kind of information can no longer be made available, can be denied now, which you could not deny earlier? Absolutely. If you look at the experience of the last 17 years of the RTI law, Sampath, most RTI applicants are seeking information so that they can hold governments accountable, they can access their basic rights and entitlements. For example, somebody who's not getting their rations asks for the ration shop records so that they can make out if there is any corruption happening in the system, who is getting how much ration is very important for them to understand where the rations are being pilfered. And using that information, then there is a complaint and they can get their uh, their rightful entitlement of rations. The same thing holds true for Manrega wages, for pensions, for scholarships to uh, SEST students, to economically weaker section students, because we know that corruption happens when uh, work is done behind a veil of secrecy. And unless granular personal information of this nature, who is getting what, what right, what entitlement, what benefit under all of these welfare programs, laws and schemes, unless this information is available to people, there is no way they can fight corruption and hold the government accountable for the delivery of their basic rights. Again, uh, if you look at how people have used the right to information law to access information about the names of willful defaulters of public sector banks, we know how large loans are being written off in the name of bad loans. We know how from public sector banks, when uh, these big uh, uh, corporate houses, individuals are taking funds and they're sort of, you know, uh, they're running away overseas, people have sought information about the list of these people, their names. They have a right to know it's their money in public sector banks. Uh, this will become uh, virtually impossible to access. Voter lists, for example. Every democracy in the country uh, virtually puts out this kind of information on voters uh, in the public domain to prevent electoral fraud. So that contains our names, our addresses, our photographs. This is to make sure that people can monitor, make sure that there are no arbitrary Does this amendment mean, uh, so Anjali, does this mean that we will no longer be able to see voter lists? Are we sure of that? There, there is a very, very strong possibility that that could happen. The law says that if there are any other laws that guarantee disclosure of personal data, uh, those, those disclosures will be protected. But if you look at uh, how voter lists are out in the public domain, the representation of People's Act does not mention the form of disclosure that, you know, it has to be in this way. It it leaves it to the rules to decide, which is then something that the central government can now decide and say it can be taken off. So there is a very big question mark today, uh, Sampath, on what information will be available and accessible henceforth. It's the same thing with Bandrega. You know, we have a very, very sophisticated right, we'll, we'll come back MIS. to that, uh, Anjali, in a bit. Uh, I yes. just wanted to get Alok yes. in on this question. Uh, Alok, do you want to add anything on this uh, right to information versus privacy uh, balance being broken uh, with this amendment? Yeah, absolutely. What I, I fully agree with Anjali. And the key point is the element of public interest, right? One is there is no definition of personal information under the Act, right? 
the RTI Act does is not supposed to be a privacy legislation. The RTI Act is just supposed to be a legislation which guarantees your right to uh, information from the government. And there's no definition of what constitutes a personal information, which means the PIO will just basically say, no, this is personal information. And there is no mechanism to understand the balance. As Anjali correctly pointed out, there was a very well-crafted, nuanced balance which said, don't reveal personal information that has nothing to do with pu public activity. But if it is something which is in great public interest, the CIC will be able to take a call on it or the CPI will be able to take a call on it to say, actually, this is hugely important. Just to give you uh, an example, right? If, if I were to ask for someone's medical records, absolutely not. They should not be released to me. But if I were to say, I need to know how often this judge of the Supreme Court who, claims he, who keeps claiming that, you know, I have health issues has actually accessed medical care in India or abroad. Again, without going into the specific nature of the uh, of the health issues and so on, I should be I should know that because at the end of the day, my public money is funding their health care to that extent. Again, I can multiply the examples, but the important point is that the kind of balance which the RTI Act had struck, and maybe there were some judgments this way, some judgments that way, but the very careful balance that had been struck has completely been overturned in the context of this legislation and in a way which is designed to enable somebody who wants to deny you information to just use this as a blanket ground to deny uh, information. And I think that is the disingenuity of this exercise, right? On the one hand, uh, you as a citizen have basically no resistance if the government says, give me all your information. But if I, as a citizen, ask the government, please give me information, here is a, for the government to simply stonewall me and say, no, you have no right to this information. Right. Uh, so this clearly is a big uh, flaw in this draft version, in this this bill, in the draft which has been passed. Coming to the other big talking point about this uh, bill, Alok, I was just wondering uh, what you make of all these exemptions. I mean, there are like, on the one hand, all the exemptions which are available to quote-unquote instrumentalities of the state. And then there are also exemptions for the purpose of debt recovery. I just wanted to come in quickly uh, with your thoughts on these two kinds of exemptions and what they imply. Um, one, let's sort of understand like the underlying basis of this, which is that, um, I mean, underlying basis of the principle, which is that as the Supreme Court has acknowledged in the Puttaswamy case, your right to information, your right to privacy is available against both the state and private parties. Now, of course, the state will enjoy certain exemptions that private parties cannot claim, right? Obviously, it's the state alone which acts in national interest. Of course, it's the state which acts in by instances of law and order, and private parties cannot claim those kinds of exemptions. But what is problematic are the blanket nature of these exemptions, right? The state is giving itself, or rather the government is giving itself the power to designate entire bodies which will be out of the ambit of the act. That is the huge problem, right? I mean, the fact that there are be slightly different bases for the government to do certain kinds of processing from the private party, that's sure, that's understood, that's a trivial point. But even those need to be backed up with some sort of protections, need to be backed up with some sort of procedural safeguards. And this also needs to be a much more specific, nuanced, like in the previous versions of the bill, certain bodies were specifically outlined. Now, we could debate, okay, should this body be there or not, that body not be there. But to basically blanket exempt certain kind to give yourself the power and that's the problem that is also at the heart of this bill to say there are going to be certain bodies whom we will we will as the government decide 
should be entirely exempt from the rigors of this bill, whatever such rigors there are. And also the fact that there are the bill also accounts for the fact that in the Aadhaar judgment, right? This is the second Puttaswami judgment, which is a five-judge bench judgment. There are certain provisions relating to, yes, the government need not take your consent for processing certain data that it already has for the purposes of A, B, C, D, and so on. That's fine. And that is something which is already already protected by court. We could debate about whether it was a right judgment or a wrong judgment. So that, that isn't per se wrong. But to me, the problematic part is the kind of blanket power that the government has given itself. And it's an unrestricted power. It is something which kind of makes threatens to make the entire regime like uh, you know the data protection regime applicable in a very narrow conspectus and not the state instrumentalities it also gives itself the power to exclude whole sections of the economy also from this so which means what is the who is this law going to be for at the end of the day what are they going to have to change because of this law and one thing that i you know it, it, it's a classic case of you know Sherlock Holmes said you know you have to always look for the dog which doesn't bark for me, I see the thrill with which this bill is being welcomed by the in, by India's tech sector as the fact that they don't have to change anything. They don't have to do anything as a result of this bill. Nothing that they do today will fundamentally change. And likewise, even the government today, I, I mean, we don't know if they will have to end up yeah. change doing anything. I don't think they will have to sort of fundamentally change the way in which their pro, um, uh, you know processes work. So, which brings me back to the question, who is this bill for? What is it supposed to be doing? And if, you know, like, sure, you want a simple bill, that's fine. But simple is not a substitute for effective. Simple is not like a substitute for a strong bill, right? So, which is where I, I, I mean, I see the blanket exemption clauses and wonder what is, what is really the point of this exercise. Uh, instead of uh, having an exemption for a particular purpose or a particular situation or a particular kind of a process the exemption is for an entity which happens to be an instrumentality of the state that's the, is that what you mean by a blanket exemption uh, that's right I'm, I'm specifically looking at this provision of the bill uh which kind of uh you know says this exemptions provision which is a, under the special provisions which gives the government the power to exempt any uh particular authority like section 17.2 shall not apply the provisions of this act, not like, you know, specific part of the act, the provisions of this act shall not apply in respect of the processing of personal data by such instrumentality of the state as the central government may notify in the interest of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or in the process. And for these reasons, in the processing of by the central government of any personal data that such instrumentality may furnish to it, right? So in, in, in that context, you're like essentially saying we can identify bodies who will be entirely out, out of the purview of this act. And maybe at some point we'll figure out some policy in which to be in which how they will collect data and so on and so forth. And this again, see, look at the terms that they use, right? We, we, we think these terms are familiar in the interest of sovereignty and integrity of India, security of the state, friendly relations with foreign states. Maintenance of public order, prevent, preventing incitement of, and they sound okay because these are words straight from the constitution. So why shouldn't the exemptions be provided? Unfortunately, what people miss out is that those were the limitations within which parliament had to act. Parliament couldn't itself say tomorrow the government will decide what it means by sovereignty and integrity. Government will de decide what it means security of the state. Government will say decide what it means friendly relations with foreign states. In some senses, and this is unfortunately what was not understood and addressed in the Shreya Singhal case, 
these are boundaries for parliament to act within parliament has to define these boundaries it's not for the parliament to say actually you know we'll just use these words and let the government decide how it wants to as long as it somehow links to the concept of sovereignty and security and so on we're fine with it it's it's a complicated constitutional point but i want people to take away from the fact that these kinds of broad terms should not sit in this law this law should specifically say I mean, let's take for instance security of the state it means it should be where there is an instance of a violent outbreak outbreak of violence right like what we're seeing in manipur it's not it's not the same thing to say that uh, the the bima koregaon the, the, uh, the folks are also in the same path as the manipur uh, folks and that is the problem with defining these terms so widely and without any uh, restrictions on how right. to define these broad uh, these terms as you are saying that's a good point to make a look about how parliament should be the one uh, which should be defining these terms and operating on them and not the government uh, getting a free hand to sort of define them i just we're running out of terms i want to get anjali uh, your thoughts on uh, the data protection board uh, which is supposed to be at least ideally an independent body but we know from the bill that it's going to be uh, the union government which is going to appoint its members uh, decide their terms of appointment can you talk a little bit about what is supposed to do and will it be able to do that given that uh, it's going to be appointed by the government sampath let me actually uh, put this in a uh, in the larger context what we have been seeing is how the central government wants to have it both ways as far as the access to data personal data and information is concerned so if we look at the arguments that were made by the central government in the aadhar case when the government was collecting people's personal data including biometrics the central government said people don't really have a fundamental right to privacy that's what they argued in the supreme court when it came to the government collecting people's personal data including biometrics but when it comes to sharing information with citizens uh, you know whether it's assets and liabilities of public servants or it is the educational qualifications or it is a host of other data the government very quickly hides behind the right to privacy to say we will not share information so i just want to say that this bill is really an exercise in making sure that the central government controls and decides who can collect access use and process personal data and who cannot so what alok said is that everyone who holds personal data of any individual is a data fiduciary this will include campaigns who are basically collecting lists of people who are not able to access their rations pensions scholarships it will include resident welfare associations it will include political parties everyone it will include corporates but when the government says that we can give exemptions 
under this law. It empowers itself. It basically means that they will decide who will be left out of the ambit of this law and will not have to meet the kind of obligations that are laid out for data fiduciaries to meet. If I have to collect anyone's data today, I need to give out a notice, a written notice. I need to get consent from that person in writing. There are a whole host of obligations. Whereas those who are exempted don't need to comply with those. For And who will decide? It's a central government through notification. So the big fear, therefore, there is that the central government will find it convenient to include in the notification for exemption a lot of its own departments, like the UIDAI, et cetera, who hold a lot of our personal data where we need our privacy protected and our personal data protected, they might leave out a lot of private sector entities, uh, you know, companies, big uh, capitalists, you know, there's a whole uh, debate about crony capitalism in the country who are uh, supporting the central, uh, you know, the ruling party in power. So they might be exempted. And what happens is that for those who are included in the list of data fiduciaries, if there is any violation of the law, the, a complaint against them goes to a data protection board. Now, this board has the powers to impose penalties up to 500 crore rupees on every instance of violation of the law, which basically means that this board has huge powers and it's a completely sarkari board it's a government controlled board the government is central government will decide the composition of the board the central government will decide who will be appointed as chairperson and members of the board their removal now, this completely raises the concern that the Supreme Court has been raising that, you know, these kind of bodies that are supposed to protect our rights must be autonomous of the central government. So is the, the data protection board, uh, Anjali, is, is the data protection board sort of getting primed to be another kind of an ED as we know it today? Absolutely. The Supreme Court has said that the CBI has become a caged parrot because of the various appointment issues and so on. The ED, the way it's operating, there is complete potential of weaponization of this board to actually go after voices that are critical of the central government's policies and actions, organizations, individuals, political opposition in the country. I mean, a, a democracy essentially is based on adversarial politics. You do need data in, to be informed, to have information, to be able to hold governments accountable. That is part of a democracy. So this, what this is doing, the this kind of imagination of a data protection board is that this will be a central government controlled body which can go out target because uh, you know if you read these two things together the fact that the government will exempt whoever they want from the law and the law will be applicable to others and then the body which is actually deciding complaints is completely controlled by the central government that 
really, uh, you know, puts out a very, very dangerous paradigm. And what it, it really means for uh, this country, therefore, is that when we say data is the new oil, when we say that without information today, uh, you know, we, we can't possibly carry out so much work on accountability on other things, we are saying that the central government, which is the largest data repository in the country, is saying that it is giving itself all sorts of powers, uh, arbitrary in many cases, to decide who can and who cannot uh, use personal, collect personal data and use it in the country. Right, right. So those, those are really uh, worrying uh, thoughts on this, on this whole question of exemptions as well as data protection board, uh, Anjali. So you pointed out, uh, in other words, that the largest depository of personal data is also uh, with this bill giving itself the powers to decide who can exempt themselves from the provisions of this bill and who could be uh, possibly targeted through this data protection board, which is also controlled by the government. Uh, selectively, as you've seen in other agencies, so-called autonomous agencies, which are also controlled by the government, how uh, they have been functioning and that kind of potential for weaponization. Uh, does uh, exist. So, uh, Alok, Anjali made some really uh, strong and troubling points about the Data Protection Board and how, uh, in the context of democracy and dissent, there is a scope for it to be uh, weaponized. I was just wondering what are your thoughts on this board, uh, the way uh, it is expected to be an independent body, but how the provisions don't seem to be supporting that aim. So uh, this is where I think uh, I'd like to draw a distinction between what was it was intended to be in the previous versions of the bill and what it is currently. In the previous versions of the bill, it was supposed to have more teeth in order to be able to investigate any actual problem uh, breaches of uh, data protection law and take action against it. Now it's a mostly toothless body. I mean, yes, it it, it at most it can kind of you know impose these penalties, but there is appeals to the appellate tribunal and. You know, uh, it, it, will, it will, of course, tie up people in litigation that the government wants to target. But if I have to be extremely cynical, I will say the government would rather use a CBI or an ED or an NIA to target people uh, rather than this body. But I think even the core function of this body, even those who want to use it for good faith, right? Even those who want to approach this body and say, look, there has been a violation by this particular uh, big company which have uh, which, which has taken my data and has done this with that, done with that. This body can't do very much. It will say, okay, fine, you filed a complaint and we will do a quote-unquote inquiry. Uh, what sort of inquiry will it do? Uh, because we don't know what will be the capacity of this body. Can it demand that turn over your entire servers to me? Turn over, maintain these logs that I can see where you have shared with whom? Uh, what if uh, the other body just says no? And let me put it in a more specific context, right? If today I have no idea what Google does with my data. I have no idea what Microsoft does with my data. So they will appoint somebody called a data protection officer. But if I am unhappy with something, it's for me to find out what they're doing with it. It's for me to go figure out where my data is going. It's for me to figure out what is actually happening and then make a complaint. Now, I can't just make a complaint saying Google is taking too much data. This body will say, no, there's nothing wrong with that because this law doesn't per se prevent Google from taking the data uh, because it has already taken my data. I can't say, well, you know, I consented to this, but I'm not sure I consented to that other thing. 
they'll say, well, we don't know if Google is actually doing this other thing. Now you pro pro provide the evidence to say that Google is actually doing this other thing. It's, it, 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 you know, it, it, I would say that there are lots of sectors of industry which would love for this exact model of regulation to be applied. Imagine if this was applied in the context of the automotive sector, right? That if you have a problem with the car, you figure out what is wrong with the car and come and complain to this body, then the body might do something, right? If there's a manufacturing defect, you go do the research, you find all the details. If a crash happens, you figure out if the car is at, uh, at fault or if someone else, and then go make a complaint. And if something goes really wrong, there may be a possibility of monetary penalty, which a company will gladly pay and then take the money from, from us anyhow. So my point being that uh, if, I mean, instead of, instead of prescribing standards, instead of prescribing best practices, instead of having a mechanism to monitor how the data has been used, this particular uh, board will have basically no powers, no authority. It will be set up. It will take some complaints. The complaints will be dismissed because there is no information to say exactly what has gone wrong. Yes, a big breach which somebody finds out eventually has happened will come to the public domain. I know people keep reporting about this. But what teeth will this body have to say who caused the breach, who is committing this offense, what uh, action should be taken against them. And finally, if it is some startup which has shut down and it has basically let go of all its data, who are you going to go after? What penalty are you going to impose? Let's say my data is personal data is leaked in a data breach. Will I get any kind of compensation for, for that breach of my data? No, there is no provision for compensation as such. There is no particular way. And see, a compensation is something which a court has to kind of uh, decide on the basis of evidence before it. You have to show what is the loss you suffered. The other party has to show it took all precautions. It couldn't do anything so about it. Will the company it. be forced to pay a penalty for the data breach? The penalty, again... We are. This is a. This is just the words of it. The company can be forced to pay a penalty. But if the is the company still in existence, was the company at fault? Company can say we had a rogue actor. What are you going to do? We just had a rogue employee. That employee has been fired. Not a problem. Right. right. You now the onus is, will then shift onto you to say no. These are the best practices in these companies. This is what they should have done. This is what they should have done. They all of this they failed to do, and therefore. They should, company should be penalized, right? So at the end of the day, your data isn't sitting out there somewhere in the public. It is sitting on some server somewhere in the company, in the company which is collecting your data. It may not even be in India, right? Because of the provision of this law, which says that data from India can flow out of India unless the government says, no, it can't go to this country. Where are you going to find out where your data is being kept? What is being done with it? Who it is further being shared with? Who has further access to it? What they are doing with it? What they might not do with it? And if a company today, as I can set up a company and all the servers of the company can be outside India in some context, right? What is the use of sending me a notice saying what is happening with the data? I'll say, yeah, the data is sitting in a server in Iceland or some other country. They'll say, okay, then that's where it is and good for you. So, it's it's not so much that uh, we are trying to kind of regulate every last thing that a company does. But the fact is that data protection legislation is supposed to curb the power of big tech in how they use data. And I want to take a couple of minutes to explain this because everybody assumes that competition law is about making the market function better. It's not. Competition law is ensuring that companies don't get too powerful for the government to regulate. Today, we're in a situation where 
and I'm making no bones about this, Google knows far more about you than any Indian government ever will. Because all of us use an Android phone and maybe those of us use Apple phones possibly also. They are collecting a data point about you every single second of the day. Right? They know when you go to sleep. They know when you wake up. They know how when you, uh, how well you uh, slept, how well you did. All of that. You can right. consent uh, to it. On, on this point, Alok, I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I, I buy your point that Google does know a lot more about us uh, than probably any other entity. But on this very point, uh, I, I wanted both you and Anjali to come in, which is about knowing so much about individuals and, and the question related to it is, of course, uh, mass surveillance, which is another third big issue uh, that has been flagged with, with regard to this particular uh, version of the bill. Uh, mass surveillance, Google might be doing surveillance, but it, it does not have the instrumentalities of the state, so to speak, at its disposal uh, in terms of, you know, punitive measures, targeting measures for non-advertising purposes. But maybe some about... It doesn't need instrumentalities of the state if it can get the state to work for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It doesn't need to have your local policeman come to your house with a lathe. If the law, if the government is passing laws to protect Google, if the government is sort of giving Google a free pass to, you know, sort of uh, make a lot of money, and that's that. That was the point I was coming to. Data is not just a little bit about my personal rights or my individual surveillance or mass surveillance. It is something very fundamental about democracy. It is about who controls the democracy itself and what. I, a lot of conversation is not uh, focusing on is the fact that big tech is not entirely within the reach of most governments to regulate. Here was an opportunity for the Indian government, which is sufficiently big, sufficiently sophisticated, sufficiently has the capacity to bring big technology companies to heel, that it is now letting go of this opportunity and saying, please have a free reign. Please do whatever it is that you usually do. Just keep the money flowing. Just keep the profits flowing. There's nothing that we will do to limit in some ways what you're doing, which is why, you know, Tim Wu has a super book on big tech. Where he asks, why has there been no serious competitor to Google in so many different fields? And it's simply because that data that they have allows them to create this monopoly. And it's not just Google. I'm using Google as a shorthand, but most big tech companies use the data as a mode to prevent competition and increase their own power, not just in the world of business, but also over society and over government. So data protection law is not just simply about saying, you can go and make a complaint to this person if there is some data breach. That's the most trivial use of the law. The larger point, and which is what other countries around the world are realizing, is that this is the only way we can really pull back some power from big tech limit some of the things that they can collect data use data process data and what they can eventually do with it and that is the huge missed opportunity of this particular bill it kind of leaves it to the individual it leaves it as data is just a matter between you consenting to give data and somebody else using data nothing else happens beyond that is that is entirely right, trivial. That's, that's, uh, I, I see your point uh, that's a very well-made point alok i mean i mean i do agree that uh, the discourse around the bill has primarily been about, you know, centered on what an individual can or cannot do, can or cannot expect with regard to his entitlements, his privacy and so on. But the larger question which you've drawn attention to, putting a curb on the powers of big tech, I think that's not been discussed as much. So coming to this, this let's frame it this way, you know, 
big tech versus the big authoritarian state which does not like this and, and between these two there is this whole question of mass surveillance being a possibility so anjali what are your thoughts on this uh, question as we framed it well, uh, Sampat, I think uh, Alok has brought out a very important uh, point. What was expected of a data protection bill was to effectively curtail some of these problems of surveillance, of mass surveillance, of misuse of personal data by big tech firms. Uh, I mean, the kind of, uh, you know, uh, problems that are related to, uh, you know, this unfettered use of personal data, the ability to kind of uh, collect it, to use it, there's all sorts of financial fraud and those problems that people have been facing, unsolicited calls, uh, you know, monitoring and keeping data on everything that people have and uh, you know i think what what we are seeing here uh, by the way uh, of this bill is really the government not focusing on what the what the real need and intention of a data protection law should have been to to uh, control surveil mass surveillance to control misuse of uh, people's data by these big firms and and really sort of the uh, the bill seems to focus the government while drafting it has focused on how it can empower itself and not not addressed the problems that it was uh, meant to address or it is meant to address globally and again, that's, that's, I mean, that's a very know, good uh, way of putting it Anjali I think it's sort of we are getting the full picture I mean Alok sort of drew our attention to the fact that the curbs on big tech which was supposed to be like one of the main goals of a data protection law anywhere in the world it has not done that but what it has done is to empower itself uh, to sort of uh, scrape data uh, from wherever and you know remove all kinds of constraints from itself. I mean, that's, I think, uh, we're getting both sides of what it has not done and what it has done so well, which is not supposed to be what it should be doing. Uh, I'm sorry, we're running out of time. So one, one final question to you, Alok, and then I'll come to you, Anjali. So one of the golden standards, so to speak, of data protection in the world is the EU's general data protection regulation or gdpr so alok how would you compare our data protection regime as conceived by this bill which has been passed with the gdpr like how, how where, where does it stand i don't like to compare data regimes across the world for a very simple reason sampath we have to keep in mind the capacity of the indian state is different from the capacity of the eu is different from the capacity of the us different from the capacity of Russia and China. Then there is also the underlying ideology. The US prefers to give more, quote unquote, freedom to companies. The EU prefers to give them less freedom in that way. There are complicated equations which happen in this respect. I, I, I wouldn't hold up. I mean, yes, maybe it's a good regime. It works very well for the EU. But I wouldn't say the GDPR should be the gold standard or anything in that way because it's, 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 it's a... Uh, it, it's a bit like you know, uh, not not accounting for the thirty odd years of history that the EU has had in data protection or their own particular experiences on this front. What I would say is no. I I, I let me be specific, Alok. No, let me be specific. And you, you, I mean, I, this comes from what you yourself had said earlier about putting yeah. curbs on big tech and and the only domain, right. only region where 
big tech has been held accountable and we've seen it time yeah, and time yeah. again be it google be it facebook be it amazon it's only in the gdpr zone there must be a reason why that happened right if, if i if i if i have to be a little cheeky sampath i'd say china is probably the golden standard now <laughs> because because the way the one they have kept a lot of the american big tech companies out to their own big tech companies they are putting enormous curbs on how much data they collect so if we just use one metric maybe even gdpr is not the best example so if i, if I have to be a little cheeky about it so the reason why the more to the, get to the more serious point see india stands in a very interesting place where we have this liberal constitution which protects individual rights to greater or lesser effects we do have something resembling a functional democracy and we also face this challenge of how to regulate big tech and the use of data by governments which could prove problematic i think india had an opportunity here to show the world a completely different way not to say it will be the perfect way there will be messy compromises i I, I don't dispute the fact that there are going to be messy compromises. A lot of us would have been unhappy with various provisions of the bill, and the discourse on the data protection bill showed that in the past few years. But I believe this was an opportunity for India to show this is how a country like ours, which is still a developing country, which is trying to become a full-fledged democracy, which is trying to uh, implement a liberal constitution, this is how we can have a data protection. A mechanism which fits within the needs of the current time. Unfortunately, just by that standard, we have failed dramatically. This bill is a dramatic failure on that front because this bill, according to me, is a virtual surrender by the Indian government to the interests of big tech, while also, as Anjali pointed out, simply ignoring the concerns of how government's use of data could fundamentally alter our democracy. Right. So those are, I think, strong words to sort of conclude on. Uh, Alok, I mean, they, this bill you are saying is a virtual surrender by the government of India to big tech, and it doesn't really do anything for the data principle or the users. Uh, and Anjali, your final uh, thoughts. I was just wondering. I, mean, I was just wondering, you know, thinking about this discussion. Would you say that this bill is all about complete transparency of the citizen in front of the state? and complete opacity of the state in front of the citizen. Is that a fair description, do you think, of the spirit of this data protection uh, regime that would be instituted by this bill? Absolutely, Sampath. I couldn't have put it better myself. I think what this uh, new law, because we've seen it pass both houses of parliament, it's just waiting assent by the president, which I'm sure it will receive very soon. So what this new law will... Uh, will really contribute towards is a tremendous democratic backslide. We are already seeing how the government is empowering itself vis-a-vis -vis citizens, vis-a-vis -vis people in the country. I think the whole framework of information access of data, uh, the entire paradigm is going to be uh, impacted by this law. It is going to go against those who are governed, those who in a democracy are meant to be supreme, and it it loads the dice very much in favor of the central government. It's, it, it will impact press freedom, 
we've seen how the Editors Guild of India has raised an alarm because it does not provide for any exemption on journalistic activities. We know how a free press requires journalists to access to be able to collect data so that they can actually show us what is happening in uh, the government. This Their entire ability to do that will be impacted. There will be data fiduciaries. They're not being exempted under the law. The central government has empowered itself and all the information that citizens need in a democracy to make sure that they can uh, show uh, truth to power, they can hold the government to account, will effectively and potentially be taken away from them. Right. Strong words. Again, uh, I think of Alok, you had mentioned about how this is a virtual surrender to big tech. That is the corporate side of things. And Anjali, you're pointing it out how the government is empowering itself vis-a-vis -vis its own citizens. And that is a big danger of a democratic uh, backsliding. That's a good point as well about press freedom being infringed uh, with no exemption for journalists to be able to hold on to their sources. Very deepening <clears throat> concerns as well. Thank you so much, Anjali. Thank you so much, Alok, for coming on this show Thank and sharing your thoughts and observations on this very, very important uh, legislation. Pleasure talking to you both. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Sampar. My pleasure. Thank you, Sampar. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.